Hello and welcome to our second episode. This is Ur Hekim from Juskentum International Law Organization and today I will be relaying another podcast session with another special guest. I'm really happy to have one of the most successful lawyers of his generation, Tan Albayrak. Uh, Tan has a very interesting and enviable background, which may be a great source of inspiration for many law graduates like me. And I will shortly ask him about all the details, but first, um, welcome to our first epi- uh, for our second episode, Tan. And many thanks for joining us in one of our international law podcast sessions. Um, it is an immense pleasure for us to have you in our tape today. Um, well, uh, first of all, you are invited to this podcast session to share all your experience and knowledge with us. Uh, people who may be listening to us would be curious about your career journey. Um, so would you like to briefly share with us how it all started? Why did you choose Washington for your higher studies? How did you decide doing a Juris Doctor after having completed your bachelor's in business administration? And also we know that following the Juris Doctor, you obtained another degree, um, this time masters on a very specific area of law. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and tell us how all these academic achievements affected your career. Uh, well, first of all, greetings from the sunny Washington DC to I'm assuming cloudy Brussels. Uh, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. This is a great initiative you've taken and uh, I'm honored to be your guest. Uh, my first coming to Washington DC did not really have a higher motive. Uh, my high school, Robert College, is an American school and most of my close friends were applying to mm-hmm. US colleges at the time uh, and so I did as well. Yes. Uh, my pick, picking Washington DC uh, did not really have a specific purpose. Uh, the fact that the city it was not a typical American city, you know, no skyscrapers, diverse demographic, European <laughs> architecture and such, uh, caught my attention. So I, I ended up in Washington, uh, George Washington University in 2009, okay. uh, where I did an undergraduate in international business. Uh, while my first coming uh, was not part of a total plan. My remaining year was. Yes. Uh, I chose to continue at a law school in DC for my JD. The reason being, uh, I wanted to study something in international law, mm-hmm. and I f- felt like uh, being in the capital uh, of the United States would present us opportunities. And during my JD, I found my passion international trade uh, due to some great professors and mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, uh, like you mentioned. Uh, decided to do a trade LLM at Georgetown to further specialize in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met very inspirational people there as well. Uh, that solidified my passion in the field. And by the time I graduated, I was uh, pretty sure that this was what I wanted to do uh, as a career. Okay. So at that, at some point, it was very clear for you to be an international trade lawyer, as far as I, I understand. It, it, it was, it was. It started with the second year in law school. I wow. did the uh, Elsa Moot Court competition from that point on. And we, we actually competed against Marcus. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's really nice. You, you, I'm, I'm pretty sure you beat him. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they, they beat him. Okay. <laughs> All right, so um, thank you for this brief introduction. With regards to your professional career, um, could you briefly describe how was your WTO experience to our listeners who are probably very interested in listening about? Um, and also, what was your mission there in general? 
my WT internship was a dream come true as, as someone who had been studying uh, this area for a couple of years now. Uh, I took my first international trade law course during uh, a summer program in 2015 in that same building. Mm. And fast forward three years, it felt amazing to be part of the secretary even briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was an intern at the legal affairs division. Uh, and yes. As you may know, there are three adjudicative divisions at the WTO. One yes. is LAD, one is rules, uh, and then of course there's the appellate body, which we'll separately get uh, uh, into. Yes. Uh, legal affairs and rules divisions help with the adjudication of disputes at the panel level, mm-hmm. uh, which is the court of first instance at the WTO. Uh, rules take on only remedies cases and legal affairs rest of the covered agreements and also occasional remedies cases as well. Yes. By taking on, I mean providing legal support to the judges mm-hmm. or panelists in, in WTO jargon in arriving at their decisions at a given dispute. Uh, as you know, uh, in contrast to appellate body judges, panelists are not necessarily trained in law. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the time they are not lawyers, but they are rather ex-diplomats or economists. Exactly. Uh, they are, of course, uh, worse, than, worse than international law and trade. Yeah. but need support in writing reports that contain a bunch of legalese and, and, and references to WTO jurisprudence. Mm. So the Secretariat staff at these divisions basically provide a briefing report, if you will, uh, applying the existing jurisprudence to the facts of the dispute and recommend a certain outcome that the panelists may or may not follow. Okay. Uh, but they do most of the time. Uh, each dispute is assigned a lead lawyer uh, that functions like the Avocat General uh, in the ECJ, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. Uh, that provides legal opinions, why the report I mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. and basically draft the final report that is eventually made public in line with how the panelists have decided. Yes. Interns uh, like myself at the Legal Affairs help that lead lawyer exactly. uh, in doing that, uh, which was what I did in DS 510, uh, US Renewable Energy, a case between India. And uh, yes. the U.S. on local content requirements invoking national treatment trims and SCM. Okay. Uh, yeah. The panel report uh, was made public late June when I had already returned to Washington, D.C. to start working at my current firm. Uh, hmm. And to say a few words about my current experience at, at, at Morris Manning, uh, oh, yes. this is a different ball game. Uh, I, 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 was, I, was, I was coming there actually like yeah I was, I, I'm oh, also okay. <laughs> I'm also really interested to hear about that because we know that you have recently started to work there right worked as an as international trade lawyer at Maurice Manning and Martin yes. in Washington how do you yes, like it so uh, far uh, it's a different uh, ball game the major difference besides uh, billable hours uh, of course uh, <laughs> is, is that the type of work I do is mostly trade remedies uh, meaning anti-dumping and counterwell of, of subsidies yes. uh, it is a boutique firm but has a powerful remedies team with Don Cameron, Julie Mendoza and Bill Berenger who are the known names of this field at exactly. Trade Bar uh, mm-hmm. they have been around for a long time and represent uh, in ADCVD proceedings, Korean steel companies such as Hyundai, Posco, Dongbu, yes. the Turkish Borusan. Yes, Borusan is also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the government of China uh, in, in CVD proceedings. Oh. Uh, I'm learning a lot from the body of knowledge that is at this firm and get to work one-on-one with mm-hmm. these people, uh, mm-hmm. which is how I wanted to start it off my career in private. Yeah. Uh, I felt like I learned the tricks of the trade uh, faster mm-hmm. at a such uh, you know, uh, boutique setting. Uh, I'd like to think that I am. Uh, so it's 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 going well so far. Perfect, perfect. Many many thanks, Dan. I mean, I'm I'm wishing you the best in this long and successful career journey from the very beginning. Um, now I'm I'm sure our listeners would like to also know more about your approach to some legal um, developments. 
um, especially the current developments on the emerging trade wars uh, with respect to the national security justifications under Article 21 get. <laughs> what a surprise. Um, well, what do, you think, what do you think are the current core challenges of this so-called Pandora's box in global trade? Uh, the Pandora's box, uh, I think, comes from the fact that the term national security is a vague and subjective term in itself. Yeah. Uh, and the second layer of the problem is that it irritates a delicate balance that is embedded in the entire WTO team, mm -hmm. uh, which is on one hand respecting the right of sovereigns to regulate yeah. versus on the other hand preventing them from engaging in trade restrictive action. Uh, in some agreements, it is easier to draw a line and find a violation, but when it comes to more uh, serious stuff like national security, there is a certain amount of added sens sensitivity to the discussion. Mm -hmm. And uh, adjudicating bodies can easily be seen by the sovereign as infringing on their internal uh, affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, when there's a decision which attempts to uh, uh, determine if a particular situation in a country constitutes a legitimate uh, national security threat or not, uh, and uh, I think this may be a, a good place to say again to DS five twelve. Yep. Exactly. Um, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, I, yeah. I, like to be honest, I also wrote my uh, master's thesis on this on this area. It was quite vague when I when I started to write because I remember Trump was implementing um, other like Twitter measures every single day. <laughs> So uh, I remember I had to update yeah. my thesis like the, the next day I kind of like pre-submitted so that <laughs> at that moment I felt like, okay, this is going to be, this is just the beginning of this, you know, uh, huge legal dispute. And yeah, I mean, well done for this old explanations. Everything is clearer for me now. But now I'm, I'm more curious about, um, as part of your work, um, that you may have had a chance to closely observe the WTO practice uh, when a member state intends to trigger the national security justification um, to kind of justify their trade restrictive actions. Uh, would it be possible if you could just give us a quick and general outlook of how this slippery slope nature of national security applies to the WTO law, especially considering the recent panel ruling on the S512? So DS five point two, commonly known uh, as the Russia Ukraine. Exactly. Case. Yes. Uh, I, I I thought it was a decision as informing as it could get on an article that lacks proper jurisprudence that would shed light on its interpretation, and I'm of course talking about Article twenty one. Exactly. Uh, the decision certainly did not clarify uh, all the ins and outs of the article, and uh, neither it had to. Uh, but I thought it at least made clear that the article is not entirely self-judging, as the U.S. claims. Yes. Uh, it will be subject to the scrutiny of a reasonableness standard, like the necessity test and, and Article 20 general exceptions. Exactly. And the bar is set somewhat high, uh, in that the situation in the country really needs to be uh, messed up, uh, or with the words of the panel, very close to the hardcore of war or armed conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, the panel in DS-512 noted that there, there uh, was uh, and is uh, such active uh, armed conflict zone between Russia and Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, and that this justified the taking of certain trade restrictive measures for security reasons. Uh, this in itself, I believe, is a good indicator of, uh, of how the 
US uh, 232 cases will come out uh, yes. in that the geopolitical situation uh, is not uh, messed up enough to rise up to the level of a national security threat, uh, nor is there a military conflict with the countries uh, that it has these uh, steel and aluminum uh, tariffs on. And so uh, tariffs are clearly not a necessary action uh, for the protection of uh, essential security interests. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Oh, yeah, it became even clearer right now uh, that the rising, I mean, this rising protectionism trend, maybe you're also, um, I mean, you know, you know better than me, in many countries is likely to lead more aggressive application of national security in the future, uh, especially considering the fact that WTO reports, they may not be adopted by the member states at the end of the day. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe we should also discuss about, as you just mentioned, the U.S. Section 232 um, investigations, uh, which became quite a hot topic nowadays, especially after the investigations were initiated on steel and aluminium in 2017, as well as on automobiles in 2019. So my first question is going to be about what kind of competence is required for initiating a Section 232 investigation? And what happens when a Section 232 investigation is initiated? I'm actually glad that you're asking this question because my, my firm, Morris Fang, actually has a case uh, in the federal circuit and later will be in the Supreme Court regarding yes. the uh, unconstitutionality of the statute. Uh, with regards to the competence uh, required, there is virtually none uh, for the initiation of a Section 232 investigation. Yes. Uh, what happens is Commerce is directed, the uh, Department of Commerce is directed uh, to conduct an investigation, and as a result, Commerce Secretary shares uh, the findings and makes a recommendation to the President, which mm. the President may or may not follow. Mm. As you mentioned, um, there has been an investigation after an report as well, though the report is yet to be released. Uh, my view on that is that the Trump administration is holding it as a hanging threat over the EU in the hope that it will uh, help with the TTIP uh, negotiations. As a but political tool, issue, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tends to do that a lot. Uh, <laughs> but the, 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 the real issue on their part, uh, on the Trump's uh, administration's part, is that even the US auto companies are against it, mm-hmm. as tariffs on auto parts would increase their production costs. Uh, so I personally uh, do not think that even Trump would go uh, through with that, uh, especially nearing the election season. Uh, to revert to tariffs on steel and aluminum, uh, Congress uh, has a strong stance against it. Uh, neither mm. the Republicans nor the Democrats are happy with the broad powers uh, the president has with the statute. And sometime during the fall, uh, around October, um, Senators uh, Chuck Grassley uh, yes. from Iowa, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, and Rob Parton from Ohio, these are all Republican senators, mm-hmm. are expected to introduce bills that curb the powers of the president and give the Congress at least a final say in this, meaning the vote of the Congress would be required Mm. Uh, for the imposition of any tariffs under uh, Section 232. Mm -hmm. Uh, But being in Washington for the past 10 years, I would not count on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would count on is the unconstitutionality case. Uh, That is uh, in the federal circuit. Uh, The reason being, uh, U.S. courts tend to be very sensitive when it comes to two issues, uh, tax and and constitution. Mm. Uh, If I may uh, briefly mention what this this case is all about, uh, it is not an as-applied challenge. Uh, Rather, it is a de jure challenge on the statute itself. Hmm. 
Uh, as you know, Congress has enumerated powers on trade and tax. Mm -hmm. uh, tariffs are basically trade taxes. Um, and uh, Section 232 essentially delegates this power Congress has to the executive branch. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this is not a violation, but there is a principle embedded in Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which is known as the non-delegation principle, yes, non -delegation. Uh, basically, mm -hmm, which basically states that if the Congress delegates a certain power it has to the executive branch, it has to do so in a way that lays out an intelligible principle to guide the executive. Hmm. Our challenge is basically that the statute is written so way that its language does not set forth an intelligible principle to guide the president. Mm -hmm. The president can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, for how long he wants, and there are essentially no limits to it. Mm -hmm. While the intelligible principle is not the highest of bars, the statute is so open-ended that it cannot be said to even clear that bar. Mm -hmm. uh, the federal circuit, uh, which is the appellate level in the U.S. court system, yeah. is expected to rule on uh, this by the end of the year. And if it's not struck down at that stage, uh, we'll go to the uh, Supreme Court next year. Okay, yeah. All right, so just please correct me if I understand wrong. That from what you said, I understand that ex actually ex the executive branch depend is uh, depends on Congress position in giving the authority to the executive branch to inve initiate such investigations. So the outcomes of such investigations uh, also depend on the Congress, more or less. Correct. Uh, the, the the outcomes of of the two twenty two investigations. Exactly. No, it's, it's solely between the executive branch and the Commerce Secretary. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and Congress uh, is trying to have a say in, in, in that too with the, with the uh, bills to be introduced, uh, mm. I mentioned. Okay, 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 okay. Well, perfect. Um, do you have any addition for this section, by the way? Uh, not really. I'm, I'm pretty much uh, done with what I have to say. Amazing. Okay. Um, very enlightening and it was quite clear. Thank you very much for this. And I have a final question, which is about kind of a procedural uh, WTO laws um, topic. And it is also a hot topic. And let us now focus on another issue. My next question is going to be on the future of WTO and its mm. dispute settlement system. There are rumors now that every day um, people are arguing that the U.S. may seize its WTO membership and many other members may leave afterwards. So there's this potential earthquake in the WTO system. And on the other hand, we also have this dispute settlement body change, uh, structural change in a sense that appellate body, um, the dispute settlement body's part, uh, appellate body, will no longer be in use. So how do you assess all these developments in WTO and how do you see WTO's future in general? And do you think in the absence of an appellate body in the new system, um, parties will find other ways for appeal, uh, such as arbitration or not? Uh, first of all, I do not think the US will leave. Uh, and secondly, even if it did, I don't think the rest of the membership would follow. Yeah. Uh, the, U the, the U.S. has been the main beneficiary of the system. Uh, and the way I see it is that it, merely, uh, uh, it is merely using its blockage, uh, which did not start with the Trump, uh, of the uh, appellate body as a leverage to re-strengthen the negotiating arm of the WTO. Yes. Uh, like the interim agreement between Canada and the EU, uh, parties will no doubt resort to temporary means, such as Article 25 arbitration. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with that is, is that... Uh, 
that does not solve the underlying cause of all this, uh, which is that the legislative body of the WTO has fallen way behind the adjudicative body. Uh, the GATT as, uh, used to as essentially be a system of diplomacy, yes. of negotiation. Uh, this was the case from the 1947 Geneva round up until the Uruguay round, which yes. created the WTO. Uh, it is important to remember, legal does not have the solution to all problems. And uh, what I mean uh, by that is oftentimes the law uh, lags behind realities. Mm-hmm. Uh, a diplomatic mechanism works to basically step in during crisis moments like this to bridge that gap. Uh, the problem with the WTO uh, hmm. is that the General Council and uh, other negotiating groups fell behind and the adjudicative body uh, essentially took over. Okay. In some instances, they had to uh, because the AB does not have uh, the option to remand and send that case back to the lower court. Hmm. Uh, in od- other instances, one might argue uh, that they got into issues they did not necessarily have to go into. Yeah. Uh, judicial activism or not, uh, appellate body decisions naturally start becoming the law uh, when the Doha round collapsed. Yeah. And the current agreements started coming off as uh, outdated as new players such as China entered the system. Uh, to take the SCM agreement, for example, uh, subsidies and control measures uh, agreement, yes. the subsidy model of today is not the same as in the old days where the government would uh, directly give a grant and the WTO would go, aha, I caught you, but mm. uh, it's not that simple anymore. New economic models such as state capitalism or whatever you, you call it mm. uh, have emerged uh, and it is not as straightforward uh, anymore to capture a subsidy. Hmm. The whole discussion, uh, you know it, on public body. Yeah. What is a public body anymore? How much of a control are we talking about? Or, or to take uh, another agreement, TRIPS. Yes. Uh, the, IP, uh, the IP issues of today's world is not the same as in, in 20 years ago. Uh, you know, the whole Section 301 war between... China and the U.S. is based on forced technology transfers and cyber theft, hmm. and the U.S. essentially uh, resorted to this mean of unilateral tariffs uh, yes. through the excuse that uh, the WTO agreements um, do not capture novel practices. Hmm. So to answer your question, uh, while uh, having some sort of a temporary dispute settlement mechanism uh, such as Article 25 arbitration is, is certainly better than having nothing hmm. after the collapse of the AB, uh, the real solution uh, seems to be bringing back the legislative arm of the WTO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that sense, I think the more plurilateral agreements yes. uh, need to be negotiated with a smaller group of members on a narrower set of topics than attempt a huge multilateral round such as Doha with an unrealistically broad agenda and have it collapse. Uh, realistically, I, I feel like uh, this is the way forward. Okay, yeah. Yes, just a just a small addition to this. Um, in a recent forum I have attended, um, there was this WTO um um executive, one of the WTO executive uh, working at Geneva, and he was actually like talking all about like every single country is criticizing us, and the thing that they want is to find us a common cr- ground for all countries, but we are not created for this purpose and stuff. So it was like it was very. Really interesting to hear that position of the guy. Like it, he looked very stressed. To be honest, who, 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 who was him again? Um, it's it's better to keep his name with me for oh, now. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I have a name in mind. I have a name yeah. in mind. That's what happened. <laughs> uh, but, but but he is right. Yeah, yes. the Uruguay run was a, was a miracle. Exactly. Uh, 
it's it's not realistic to bet on the, the repetition of, of miracles. Yes. And it's hard to get everyone on board uh, on yeah. every single topic. So uh, through lateral agreements, uh, such as uh, there was an aircraft agreement once upon a time, and mm-hmm. uh, there's the government procurement, mm-hmm. I, I think is the way to go. Uh, if these agreements are to be revised and uh, bring up to up to date with the current uh, economic realities uh, of the world exactly yes and i i think it it may it may be not enough to just you know evaluate wto organization as a whole just for for uh like considering the developments in the dispute settlement body because you know regarding all these other projects in especially in trade facilitation i guess wto yep. made it a, made a great um, improvements in the global trade especially in multilateral trade despite the fact that on the other hand the regional groupings and preferential trade agreements try to regenerate the position of multilateral trade every day so yeah literally like i'm quite hopeful of all these let's see how it goes <laughs> i i would like to be hopeful as well yeah certainly yeah, yeah. because <laughs> well, the system benefits everyone on the aggregate then. and I, us is well aware of that uh, Yes. They are merely trying to uh, revise the WTO, not not collapse. It is my uh, take. Definitely, absolutely, a brilliant. I mean, I guess we are in the same page in this discussion as well, Tan. Well, well, thank you very much for your deep and enlightening insight on the issues we have discussed in this episode. And it was I'm, my honor. <laughs> I'm sure in our next episodes will be as extraordinary, comprehensive, instructive, and entertaining as as this one. Um, and we will be honored to welcome you again, either in another podcast or in another project of Juscantium. <laughs> Sounds good, thank you. Finally, I would like to thank to all our listeners for joining our podcast session. Um, we hope you enjoyed your time as much as we did. Uh, please do not forget to f- uh, forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as subscribe our newly created YouTube channel. And please do not hesitate to contact us for sharing your constructive feedbacks, further suggestions, and creative ideas. Stay tuned with Juscantium.